Chapter One of the Weird Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Weird Picture by John R. Carling. Chapter One The Red Stain. Belgrave Square, November 28th. Dear Frank, Surely you are not going to spend a third Christmas at Heidelberg. We want you with us in good old England. My marriage with Daphne is fixed for Christmas Day, and I shall not regard the ceremony as valid unless you are my best man. So come, come, come. No time to say more. You can guess how busy I am. Write or wire by return. Yours, George. Such was the letter received by me, Frank Willard, student in Odenwald College, Heidelberg, on the first day of the last month of the year. The writer of the letter was my brother, the captain in the something. I take pride in not remembering the number of the regiment, for I am a man of peace and hate war with all connected therewith, excepting, of course, my soldier brother, though my affection for him had somewhat waned of late years, for a reason that will soon appear. The letter was accompanied by a portrait of George, an exquisite little painting in oils, representing him in full-dress uniform. A glance at the mirror showed how much I suffered by comparison. He looked every inch a hero. I looked, well, no matter. In the lottery of love, the prizes are not always drawn by the handsome. The Daphne referred to was our cousin, a maiden with raven hair, dark blue eyes, and a face as lovely as a naiad's. Her father, Gerald Leslie, was a wealthy city merchant, who, after the death of our parents, became the guardian of George and myself, bestowing on us a warmth of affection and a wealth of pocket money that made the transference to his roof seem rather desirable than otherwise my own father having been of a somewhat cold and undemonstrative temperament. However, de mortis nil nisi bonum. My first impulse on reading the above letter was to pen a refusal to the invitation. What, it may be said, refuse to be present at your brother's wedding? Refuse to return home to old England at Christmas tide? A season dear to every Englishman from its sacred and festive associations. Breeze there the man with soul so dead, etc. Exactly. My soul was dead, both to the joys of Christmas and of Daphne's wedding. Four words will explain the reason. I myself loved Daphne. And I had told her so, only to find that she had given her heart to my brother George. I am not going to fill this chapter with the ravings of a disappointed love. Suffice it to say that in my despair I left England, determined to see Daphne no more, and betook myself to the University of Heidelberg with the hope of finding oblivion in study. Greek choruses, strophes, strophes, and epodes are, however, all very well in their way, but they are a sorry substitute for love. At any rate, they did not make me forget Daphne. Her sweet face continued to haunt me, and in the despairing and romantic mood of the Manfred, I spent many a night on the mountains around Heidelberg, watching the stars rise and brooding over my unrequited love. 
Thus my brother's letter was far from being a source of pleasure to me, though it was kindly meant on his part, for he was ignorant, so I subsequently learned of my own love for Daphne. So I subsequently learned of my own love for Daphne. His invitation, translated into the language of my thoughts, simply meant, Come and be more unhappy than you are. Deep down in my heart I had cherished the belief that something unforeseen would happen to break off George's engagement. The sands of that hope were now fast running out. On the twenty-fifth of the month would remove Daphne from me forever. For several days I fought with my despair, but at last I resolved to be present at the wedding. I may as well play the stoic, I muttered, and accept the inevitable. Perhaps the fact of seeing Daphne actually married to another will cure me of this folly. Curiosity, also, to see how Daphne would behave on the occasion was an additional motive for going. And, poor fool that I was, I thought of the trembling hand-clasp, the blush, and the sweet glance that a woman seldom fails to bestow on the man who has once expressed his love for her. Christmas Eve, Midnight found me on board the packet-boat steaming out of Callias Harbor. The sea was singularly smooth, and there was in the air that which gave promise of a heavy fall of snow ere long. Wrapped in my cloak, I leaned over the side of the vessel, listening to the silver carillon of the church bells pealing forth from every steeple and belfry in the town the glad tidings that the sweet and solemn morn of the nativity had dawned. Faintly and more faintly, the chimes sounded over the wide expanse of glimmering sea, till they were finally lost in the distance. At first my thoughts were gloomy. To play the stoic is never a very pleasant task. Yet I was not totally abandoned to despair. A ray of hope played over my mind, and as the distance that separated me from Daphne diminished, this hope gradually became stronger and stronger. Nil desperandum should be my motto. The wedding had not taken place yet. Weddings have been broken off at the very altar. Why should not hers be? Foolish though it may seem, I began to nurse the pleasing idea that fate might yet transfer Daphne to my arms. As if my wish had become a certainty, I trod the deck of the channel steamer with exultant step, refusing to go below although the wintry flakes were falling now in steady earnest. Such is the power of hope over the human mind, or is it something more than a poetic fiction that coming events cast their shadows before? I was roused at length from dreamland by the sight of Dover Harbor looming through the snow-dotted gloom of night. At the pierhead a lantern shone, and among the persons assembled beneath its light a soldierly-looking figure with a long gray coat was visible. It was my brother George. His presence on the pier seemed, in my excited state of mind, a confirmation of the daring hope I had begun to entertain. The dear fellow, I murmured, he has come down expressly to meet me, and to resign Daphne to me. As our vessel drew alongside the pier, I waved my hand to him, but at this greeting he instantly vanished. This was certainly a surprise. Why did he not await my landing? I was the first to quit the steamer, and, emerging from the inspection of the revenue officials, I looked eagerly around for my brother. He was not to be seen on any part of the pier. Was I mistaken as to the identity? 
The figure, the face, the very carriage, all seemed to be his. Stay! Was this an ocular illusion? Had my mind been dwelling so earnestly on my brother as to stamp on the retina of my eye an image that had no corresponding objective reality outside myself? Would this account for the peculiar manner in which the figure had vanished? I would soon put this theory to the test. If George had come by train from London, the servants at the station would surely retain some remembrance of him. If others had seen the figure in the grey cloak, it would be a proof that my sense of sight had not deceived me. I entered the station and sought knowledge from the first porter I met, a tired-looking youth, with a sprig of holly stuck in his buttonhole, who gaped vacantly at my questions till the glitter of a silver coin imparted a certain degree of briskness to his faculties. A military-looking gent, sir? Yes, there was one on the platform a few minutes ago. Describe him, I said bluntly, as my fellow passengers from the boat began to crowd into the station. What was he like? I was desirous of drawing a description of the military-looking gent from the porter's unassisted memory rather than of suggesting personal details, to which, in his half-sleepy state and in his desire to get rid of me, he would doubtless subscribe assent. Well, sir, he wasn't very tall, at least not for a soldier, but then Bonaparte wasn't. Oh, hang Bonaparte! Go on, I said snappishly, for I was cold, hungry, and tired, conditions that do not tend to improve one's temper. He was wearing a long gray cloak and had a traveling bag with him, marked with the letters G.W. I noticed the bag particularly, because it came open as he was stepping from the carriage. My, didn't he shut it sharp, quick as lightning, as if he didn't want anyone to see what was inside. I offered to carry it for him, and he told me, What? Go to the devil. You didn't go, I see, said I, attempting to be facetious. Well, go on. What about the man's face? Face? He looked rather white and excited, perhaps because he was in a passion with the carriage door. It didn't open easily. He had a dark scar on his temple and... Left or right temple? Left. George had a dark scar on his left temple, the relic of a fall from a cliff at Uppsala. His initials, too, were G.W. Good. The figure on the pier was not an illusion, then. The porter's words convinced me that the man he had seen was my brother. How long is it since he was here? I inquired. How long? repeated the official, jerking his head backwards to get a glimpse of the station clock. Only ten minutes since. He came down by the express from Charing Cross. It was a few minutes late owing to the snow. Do you know if he had a return ticket? That I can't say. What's the next train to London? One just on the move now, sir. The next in two hours' time. Better travel by this one. The next is sure to be a slow one. This snowstorm is so heavy. Going by this one, sir, he continued, swinging open a carriage door as he saw my hesitation. Only a minute to spare. I, I don't know yet. Hold my portmanteau for a moment. I quickly ran the whole length of the departing train, but the gray coat was not in any of the carriages. This train was the one I should have traveled by, its departure being time for the arrival of the Continental boat. 
but now I resolved to delay my journey till the next in order to travel in company with my brother, for George must return by the latter train, otherwise he would be barely in time to meet the wedding party in the church at half-past nine. I returned to the porter, who was surveying me with a curiosity, the reason of which soon became evident, and said, I shall travel by the next train. Take charge of my portmanteau until then. Right you are, governor. What's he done? Forgery? Murder? He looks quite capable of it. Done? Who? I said, astounded at this sudden familiarity. Why, the military cove, returned the youth. It's no go. I see you're a tech with half an eye. I suppose the half eye that had discovered so much was his right one, for he proceeded to diminish it by screwing it up to a wink expressive of the penetration of its owner. The gentleman whom you think capable of forgery and murder is my brother, Captain Willard of the, the Never You Mind, and if you give me any of your insolence, I'll report you to the authorities, I said wrathfully. The porter, who had evidently been drinking, was a little taken aback, to judge his ejaculation of, Oh, Lord! And as I walked off with my grandest air, I heard him mutter, His brother, yes, and like him, too. The one sends me to the devil, and the other threatens to report me to the station-master. Oh, they're brothers, sure enough. By your leave, there. A multitude of questions came surging over my mind. What was George doing at Dover only a few hours before his wedding? Obviously his purpose was not to meet me, since he had avoided me. Why? Could it be that for some strange reason he was deserting Daphne on her bridal morning? A thought that caused my pulses to throb quickly. Was it shame or guilt that had kept him from facing me? Oh, if I could but find him and learn the truth from his lips! on the platform ten minutes ago. Absurd as the idea may seem, I resolved to walk the streets of Dover during the next two hours, on the chance of meeting him. The weather was of the character that popular fancy rather than historic fact has ascribed to the yuletides of bygone days, under the name of an old-fashioned Christmas. The snow was lying several inches deep in the streets, deadening the sound of my footfalls. The big flakes, still falling, blinded my vision with their whirling eddies. Not a soul was to be seen out of doors. Not a sound was to be heard, save the sea splashing faintly against the harbor walls. The town lay draped in white, a city of the dead. Not knowing in what direction to proceed, I walked on as chance directed, without seeing the person I was in quest of. Presently, as I was turning a corner, a figure, white as a ghost from head to foot, came into sight, startling me for the moment. It was a constable, and I questioned him. I saw a man in a gray cloak go by just three minutes ago. Carrying bag, Mark G.W.? Carrying a bag, sir, he replied, with marked emphasis on what the grammarians were wont to call the indefinite article. I didn't notice any letters on it. If you hurry, you'll catch him up. He went that way, pointing with his hand. Is anything the matter? Can I be of assistance? I don't understand you, I returned sharply, wondering whether he, too, like the railway porter, thought that my brother was a fugitive from justice. 
No offense, sir, but your friend seems to need looking after. He is either mad or dying. His eyes burned like live coals, and his face was as white as this snow here. I called out, a rough night, sir, but he glided on, looking neither to the right nor left, and taking no notice of me. These words increased my misgivings. I thanked the constable and, declining his proffered services, rushed on in the direction indicated by him. A line of footprints in the snow served to guide me, and following their course, I presently found myself in a street whose semi-detached villas were fronted with quite unpretentious gardens separated from the pavement by stone balustrades. There he was, halfway down the street, standing beneath the light of a gas lamp, was a cloaked man, apparently taking a survey of a house facing the lamp, while shaking the snow from himself. I hurried forward to greet him, my feet making no sound on the soft snow. "'George!' I cried eagerly, and breathlessly when within a few paces of him. "'George!' The figure turned to meet me, but not to greet me. It was my brother's face I saw." but so haggard and disfigured by the lines of pain as to be scarcely recognizable. His eyes frightened me as they gleamed in the lamplight, so glassy, so unnatural was their stare. With dread at my heart I tried to clasp his hand, but he waved me back with a gesture suggestive of surprise, despair, terror, shame, grief. Any or all of these might have prompted the singular motion of his arm, if I had come upon him in the very act of murder, he could not have shown greater agitation. The fingers of his left hand relaxed their grip, and the valise they were holding dropped silently upon the snow. His action said more plainly than words, Go back, go back. There is that happening of which you must know nothing. To my mind there could be but one cause of his emotion, a cause as awful to me as to him, and it burst from my lips in a hoarse cry. Good heavens, George! Surely, surely Daphne isn't dead! There was no reply. The laxity of his limbs and his reclining attitude against the iron column showed that he had scarcely enough strength to stand. Then a sudden gust of wind blew aside both his cloak and his coat, exposing his white vest to view. And there, upon that vest plain to be seen, was a red stain large and round. For one moment only was it visible in the fitful light of the gas lamp. The next, the folds of his cloak enveloping him again, concealed it from view. "'What is the matter? Why don't you speak?' I cried, and overcoming the vague terror that had possessed me, I stepped forward. But before I could touch him, he gave a swift glance around, apparently seeking some way of escape. And suddenly, snatching up the valise, he darted through the gateway opposite him. Hurrying up the garden path, he ascended a flight of steps, and while I was still gazing after him in amazement, he disappeared within the portico that gave entrance to the house. Here was a strange affair. George, on his wedding morn in a town far distant from his bride, trying to avoid me, his brother, after having invited me to be his best man. A second explanation of his conduct occurred to me and found its way to my tongue. He's mad, and I hesitated to follow. 
It is not an infrequent thing for the insane to think their dearest friends their foes. And this thought begot another, more fearful still to me. To be wroth with one we love doth work like madness in the brain. His wild air and the red stain on his breast might well be testimony to some tragedy. In a fit of insane jealousy he had killed Daphne. Paralyzed by the idea, I leaned, as he had leaned before me, against the lamppost, with the words, Daphne dead, ringing in my ears. I broke from the spell of terror imposed on me by my own fancy, and prepared to follow my brother, putting aside the fears for my own safety with the thought that in case of an attack my cries would summon the inmates of the neighboring houses to my aid, I cautiously groped my way to the dark portico, not without a dread that this wild figure might spring out upon me, but on mounting the snowy steps I discovered that the portico was empty and the front door of the house securely shut. I heard no noise of knocking, no sound of the opening or closing of a door, and yet, if George had not passed the threshold, where was he? This was the second time the figure had eluded me. Was it, after all, an apparition? The improbability of seeing my brother in such a place and at such an hour, his obstinate silence to my appeals, his weird aspect, the mysterious manner in which he had vanished, seemed to favor this hypothesis. Was this his wraith sent to apprise me of his death? The next moment I was smiling at the idea. A being that is merely a figment of the brain cannot be credited with the power of making footprints in the snow, yet deep footprints there were leading up the steps and terminating at the threshold of the door, footprints newly formed, whose shape and size assured me they were not my own. I drew back to take a survey of the house in which George had evidently taken refuge. A brief inspection of the dwelling failed to afford any clue as to the character of the occupants. The blinds were drawn at every window, and as might be expected at so early an hour, no light was anywhere visible. I knocked at the door once, twice, thrice. There was no reply. Then... Seizing the knocker with a vigorous grasp, I executed a cannonade with it, loud enough to rouse not the inmates of that house only, but those of the whole street. At length my summons met with recognition from within. The door slowly opened. Fully expecting to meet my brother, his eyes aglow with passion, I drew back with arms upraised to protect myself from his rush but nothing more terrible met my gaze than a venerable old man with silver hair, who shivered visibly as the cold wind drifted the snow into the passage. The lamp that he carried in his left hand, while he shielded it from the draft with his right, shone full on his face, which had such an air of quiet dignity that I felt quite ashamed of myself for having knocked so loudly. The disorder of his dress told me that he had but just risen from his bed, the contrast between his grave demeanor and my excited bearing would have amused the spectator, had any been present. It struck me as a reversal of positions. I had expected to see a madman. He certainly took me for one, standing there as I did, breathless and silent in the wild snowy night, with my arms extended in front of me. Too surprised to speak, I looked along the length of the passage as far as the kitchen, and then glanced up the staircase, 
but could not see George, nor any trace of him. Well, sir, may I ask why you rouse me thus in the dead of night? My eager impatience gave me no time for apology. I want my brother, I cried brusquely. He came in here, I think. Your brother, exclaimed the old man in a tone of surprise, that, if not genuine, was certainly well feigned. Young man, you have been too long at the taverns this morning. There is no one in this house but myself. It was difficult to refuse belief to this statement, for the old man had so grave and reverend an air that he might have stood for an image of truth, of truth in these later days. I mean, when, as it is well known, he has become a little old and antiquated. You are mistaken, I replied, after listening vainly for some sound to proceed from within that might disprove his words. Someone entered here only a minute or two ago. Unknown, it may be, to you. These footprints are not mine. But on looking downwards, I found that a snow wreath had drifted over the pavement, effectually covering the footsteps of myself as well as those of the refugee. The old man smiled at my perplexity, a smile that was annoying, for it implied that he regarded me as a sad wine-biber. Who is your brother? Captain George Willard of the, the, and then I stopped. I could perhaps have given him the titles of Caesar's ancient legions, but the name of my brother's modern regiment I was totally ignorant. I really don't know the name of the regiment. The old man smiled again, as well he might. He is in India now. That is to say, he is when he is there. You know, I stammered, conscious that I was blundering terribly. Captain Willard? I have never heard that name before. He is not here. You have mistaken the house. Would you allow me to search the place? I asked. It is a bold request for a stranger to make, especially at this unearthly hour, and nothing but the certainty that my brother has concealed himself within induces me to make it. You see, he's a madman, and might do you harm. I thought this last would move him, but it only made matters worse. I am certain that I saw him enter this house. I am willing to pay you for your trouble, if, if. I paused diffidently, for his reverend air did not harmonize well with the taking of a bribe. The old man's voice now assumed a tone of asperity. He was evidently getting tired of shivering half-dressed in the cold night air, and no wonder. I shall certainly not allow you to search the house. Your brother is not here. This door was double-locked when I went to bed. You heard me unlock it. How could he enter without the key? I must bid you good night, for I see it is no use arguing with you in your present state of mind. And without more ado, the door was closed and locked, and I could hear the footsteps of the old man receding along the passage and ascending the stairs. End of chapter 1